Good morning. How y'all doing? Happy 4th of July weekend. It's good to have you with us. This is our Braveheart Teaching Series, Courage in a World of Compromise. We're going to talk about true repentance this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Judges chapter 10. We're going to work our way from chapter 10, verse 6, all the way to chapter 12, verse 7. We won't be reading all of it, but we will read some of it. Take a look at your sermon notes there. On 4th of July alone, Americans consume 150 million hot dogs. Woohoo! Now, I, I've got to admit that I like, I like kosher all beef hot dogs with ketchup, relish, onions, and a little bag of uh, barbecue chips uh, with that. But uh, if you have ever looked at the package and read the contents of cheap hot dogs, you'd probably never, ever, ever eat them again. And uh, cheap hot dogs are, have very, very little bit of meat, beef, and a whole lot of unknown additives that are not really that good for you. In fact, the first component you'll notice is mechanically separated turkey. <laughs> what is that? Which the USDA defines as a paste or batter like poultry product manufactured by forcing turkey bones with attached edible tissue through a sieve under high pressure, a process called advanced meat recovery. Mmm! <laughs> That's bad stuff, huh? There are barf bags in the chair in front of you. So if there's for any reason you're going to want to... Uh, no, so why, why, why would I bring all that up? You can also see in your notes that Jephthah is the judge we're looking at this weekend who is a lot like many American Christians who have a very little bit of the meat of the Christian faith with a whole lot of really bad additives from our culture poisoning, poisoning our lives, poisoning their lives. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And so before we take a look at this text and unpack these notes, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? I'd like to pray Romans 12, 1 and 2. Father God, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. We love studying your word. We love how you speak to us. And because of all that you have done for us, because of your your mercies that are just breathtaking towards us, your grace and mercies. We want to live our lives for you. We want our lives to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, which is our spiritual worship. Father, may, may we not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, so that we can test and discern what is your good, acceptable, and perfect will for our lives, for your glory, our joy, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Take a look at this text. Let me begin reading chapter 10, verses 6 through nine, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a consistent pattern. You see them do that over and over again. You guys remember the, the pattern here. It starts with compromise, and the compromise leads to, or no, it starts with complacency. Complacency leads to compromise. Compromise, as you will see, leads to crisis. They're heading into crisis now, and they're, they're, they're doing evil. It leads to crisis. Crisis leads to them crying out. God sends a judge. 
So the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the Ashtoreth, the God of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. If you counted there, there are seven gods. What is the number seven in the Bible, anybody? Yeah, it's the perfect number, number of completion. So what it's saying here, giving us a picture that Israel has completely abandoned God. It says the last part of verse verse six, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Now notice the results of this. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 14, for 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Stop there, let me give you some fill in the blanks. We need to talk about this whole idea of evil. The first fill in the blanks on your notes, here's the etiology, that word means cause, of sin in our lives. This is how it works out. All of these words almost are, they're simultaneous of what's happening in our lives. It starts with unbelief. And it goes from unbelief, pride, idolatry. You see in verse six it said, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is another one of the many definitions of evil. So in unbelief, what is unbelief? It means that we begin to not trust God's love and wisdom. You see this all the way way back into the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three. They begin to question God's love and wisdom. God, you're holding out on us. That's what they were thinking, and that's typically what happens in us. That's really kind of maybe that first step. Then, of course, that leads to pride. Pride is that we think that we're smarter and wiser, more loving than God. And then that moves to idolatry. Idolatry is to replace God with a counterfeit God. Why would we replace God with a counterfeit God? Because we were made for God and him alone, and if we don't have him at the center of our life. If God isn't at the center of your life, then something else is. Which is proof to me that there is a God because you can't live without something at the center of your life. You're you're desperate to have a sense of meaning and purpose, but ultimately only he can give that to you in in a very infinite and eternal lasting way. And let me give you the definition of, of an idol. Here it is on the next, next point on your notes. An idol is looking to a created thing to give you the meaning, hope, and love that only the creator <clears throat> can give you. And so in verse 6b, they serve the Baals and the, and the Astaroths, and, and as we said, there's listed seven gods here. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And so as many as there are people here this morning and out there, that's how many gods we have. I mean, there's a list of gods out there that we could all serve, we could give our hearts to. Uh, here's just a, here's a quick list. Uh, would you guys say that in our culture today that uh, brains... Brains is one of our many gods, that is uh, intellect or degrees. Would you guys say that that's probably one of the gods that sometimes people cling to? How about Braun? Man, that guy can stuff the basketball. Wow, that guy is really athletic. Yeah, that's, that's another one. Brains, Braun. How about uh, Bucks? Money. Yeah, that's another one. How about Beauty. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you were to uh, go to 1 John, you don't need to go there, but if 1 John 2, 15 through 17 talks about love of the world and it lists three idols there that the world tends to value over and above God and it's pleasures, possessions, and positions. You, you could call it girls' gold and glory. 
or guys gold and glory. That, that's another list. But, but what's important is for you to identify those things in your own heart that compete for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from the living God. There is something or a number of things in, in your life. Idolatry is, is anything more important to you than God. It is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. This is how I've been able to identify my idols. And uh, our hearts are idol factories. And I know that I struggle with various idols and sometimes they change from week to week. But what you daydream about in your spare time is the true God of your heart. So where does your mind go to when your mind can effortlessly go to anything? You're not having to focus or concentrate on any number of things, but where does it go to? When you're laying in bed at night and you can't go to sleep, where does your mind go? It's gonna tell you a little bit of what your, what your counterfeit God is, and it was very helpful for me when I began to understand that so that I could begin to wrestle with those issues in my life. Now, every time Israel worshiped the idols of the nation, the uh, Every time Israel worshiped the idols of a nation, that nation ended up oppressing them. And you see this in the text. Here's the next few points on your notes. A couple fill in the blanks. Idolatry leads to slavery, and slavery leads to greater idolatry. So idolatry leads to slavery, and slavery leads to greater idolatry. Verse seven, you'll notice it just goes through this list of uh, he, God, sold them into the hand of the Philistines. That speaks of being enslaved, verse eight. And they crushed and oppressed them, verse nine. They were severely distressed. And what's interesting about this is that though the Ammonites had oppressed Israel in Judges 3, 13, chapter three, verse 13 of Judges, here is Israel serving their gods, leading to enslavement to the Ammonites again. Why would they keep going back to those gods? And, and this is, there's an interesting uh, understanding of idolatry and the slavery that it brings and how we're, we're driven even greater into idolatry. When an idol enslaves us, we usually seek deliverance by going harder after the very thing that has enslaved us in the first place. Because we think oftentimes the problem isn't idolatry, we just think we're not getting enough of the idol. And so we pursue a relationship, and maybe it's a bad relationship. Well, I mean, well, this was just a bad relationship, but the next one will be even better. But could it be that you have, it's a form of idolatry in your heart, that you're trying to find something in that relationship or any relationship that, that can only be found in Christ? We do the same thing with money. It seems to be never enough money or work or, or any number of things. And so you know you're enslaved or you know you're an addict. We don't like to use that word, but we're probably, all of us, in, in some degree, when we pursue idols, we're addicts to those idols. You know you're an addict, you know you're enslaved when you're trying to deal with your distress with the very thing that caused your distress. And uh, it, that's what drives alcoholism, it, perfectionism. You just keep driven deeper into that, thinking maybe just a little bit more. I'm gonna try a little bit harder. I just need a little bit more of, of that. And what's interesting about idols, and you've heard us talk about this a lot around here, but idols will enslave you. They drive you when you seek them. You think that you'll never be happy without it. It's adding that to Jesus, thinking I have to have this to be happy, and therefore you'll do anything to get it. I mean, I've seen guys... Uh, destroy their families for their career, and not just their families, they're so enslaved by it, and they're so driven by it, and they're willing to even give up their family, they give up their integrity, they give up their, their health, they give up their whole life, I've seen that happen. 
So it drives you when you seek it, and it disappoints you when you get it, because you never feel that you have enough, and you never will, because you're trying to fill a void inside of you that ultimately only God can fill. And uh, your satisfaction, your happiness really can only be found in Him. That's, yeah, in temporal things, you can find it in a temporary way, but if you want infinite and eternal satisfaction, it's only found in God. And what's interesting about idols also is that they will devastate you when you lose them. You're always worried about losing them. It creates this anxiety. Typically, anxiety is a collapsing, uh, counterfeit God when we have extreme anxiety in our life. Because you guys know as well as I know, your relationship with God, that's not gonna collapse. It, it's sure, it's certain. There's an assurance there. So your anxiety is not coming from from you and God, it's coming from some other probably counterfeit God that you're trying to substitute God with. Let me give you uh, just another kind of list here so that we understand this. So our culture, let me give you just some of our idols of our culture, I've already listed some, but here's a shorter, another short list. Our culture idolizes romantic and sexual fulfillment to the point that anything you sacrifice for it is okay so long as you're happy. And so a woman can tear apart her family and devastate her kids because she finally realizes she married the wrong person and she needs to find true love. And we all say in our culture, well, she's just being true to herself. It's idolatry. Or our culture idolizes success. A man can neglect his wife and kids in order to get ahead. And we say in our culture, well, that's just the price of success. You'll never succeed in this world unless you work long hours and take very few days off. Or our culture also idolizes self. It's that expressive individualism, we've talked about it here, or that sovereign self. And so someone in our culture gets pregnant at an inconvenient time, and so they eliminate the child in an abortion, and we say, hey, if having a kid will mess up your life, then you need to do what you need to do. That's your right. And that's our culture we live in. And and, and the list goes on. Now, what's interesting here with this idolatry and this, they're, being, they're, they're getting the living daylights beat out of them, so they've gone from complacency about their relationship with God, compromise, serving other gods, that creates crisis, and now they're gonna cry out to God, and it's gonna be interesting to see how God responds to them. Not quite how you might think he responds. Let's read um, verses 10 through 14, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also and the Malachites and the, and he goes on through this whole list. And then in verse 13, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore, I will, I will save you no more. Whoa. Notice what he says here. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Isn't that interesting? Now, take a look at your notes. Let me give you another thought here. Beware of turning from idolatry in an idolatrous way. Treating God as a means to an end rather than the end. That's exactly what they're doing. And he's calling them on that. And um, they don't want God for God. They are in pain and want God to relieve their pain. And he sees right through it. He knows our hearts. And, uh, and so for the first time in Judges, God says no. Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you in time of your distress. Now why would he do this? 
Well, it's because it's one, it's one thing for a wayward prodigal son or daughter to come home in repentance. God will always receive someone like that. But imagine a wife who has been unfaithful again and again and again, pleading for her husband's security and provision just until she finds another lover to run off with. See, that's the picture here. How many have ever seen the movie? I asked a group last night and nobody had ever seen this movie. And I, don't, I haven't actually seen the whole movie, I've just seen parts of it, but the very first part of it is quite, quite humorous. It's the Burt Reynolds movie. I'm not really fond of Burt Reynolds, but, um, but the movie is The End. Have you guys seen the movie? Okay, okay, three people here. So this is a really bad illustration, huh? No, that's a good one because the, when you look at this, the storyline, it's pretty interesting because he's diagnosed with a terminal disease and he goes around to all of his friends and family to make things right and they could care less. They just have an attitude. They go, whatever, go, and die, go away and die. And so he swims out into the middle of the ocean as far out as he could go to kill himself and then while he's out there, he has second thoughts. <laughs> and so he starts trying to swim back into the shore. <laughs> and that's the funny part. Well, I know, I have a sick sense of humor, okay. And it is kind of funny because then he's like almost drowning. He's like, oh God. And he starts negotiating with God. God, I promise I'll start tithing and I'll start going to church. I'll start reading my Bible and I'll start. He's swimming and he's like, oh, help me, help me, help me. And as he gets closer to the shore, he negotiates a little bit less. And finally, when he gets to the shore, deal's over. I made it back. Forget you, God. Isn't that interesting? It's an interesting picture, and I don't know how many times I've seen that uh, being around the church my whole life. I've seen it right here for the last 20 some odd years here at Desert Breeze where people, they lose, you know, they, they maybe take God seriously for a season and then all of a sudden, you know, their job or their family or any number of things becomes more important to them, it's obvious. And so they start pursuing that and then crisis comes into their life. So you got complacency, compromise, then you got crisis. And they come running back to God, which I think is really a wonderful thing. I think it's important. But why are you running back to God? Why are you doing that? Because I've seen people do that and, and they, a, a guy loses a job or his wife leaves him or any number of things and they're, oh my goodness, talk about brokenness. They're just crying out to God. Crying out to God and we're trying to help him and all that. And then when the, finally when the pain goes away, they go back to what they were doing before. So why, why were they uh, coming back to God? They were coming back to God to use him, not to be with him. And that's evident. I mean, it's just evident. It's, and what's fascinating about this, that's why God says to them, hey, go call on your false gods. See how that works for you. It's because they're coming back to him. They're coming back him to take away the pain rather than to really want to be with him because they, check out their response because they get it and this is true repentance. I mean, this is really a wonderful text to help us to understand what that looks like. Look at verses 15 and 16. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. There it is right there. Do to us whatever seems good good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Did you note that last statement? Isn't that a wonderful statement? He became, he was in turmoil over their misery. We, have a, we serve a God who, uh, who weeps when we weep. He cares about the things that we struggle with. And yet, he's not gonna play games with us. 
If we'll be real with him, he'll be real with us, but he knows and he can see our heart. And if we're just using him, he won't tolerate it any more than you and I would do that with, with friends or family. They're going to use us. He's not going to continue to enable people in their destructive path, nor should we. And uh, it's, it's really, really amazing as you see this. Now, here's true repentance. It's on your notes. True repentance is to want God even if it means we are going to keep on suffering. Parentheses, though we'd rather not. Yes, we would like him to give us a new job or bring our spouse back or any number of things, but even if he doesn't, we're turning back to you. That's what, he's, what, what they're saying here. Now, verse, that's verse 15. We have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you. Why? Now, why would we do that? Because having God, check this out, and I'm convinced of this, having God is better than all that life can give or suffering and death can take away. See, it, it dawned on them and they realize what we have in God is so much better than all these counterfeit gods that we're pursuing. What, what are we thinking? See, that's why I love repentance. When the Bible talks about repentance there in the second chapter of Romans, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's his goodness. It dawns on you and you go, what in the world? Why would I chase after this stuff? Why, why was I thinking that in romance or in money or in a better job or any number of things? And, and I know that some of you haven't really come to terms with that yet. It hasn't dawned on you. You still think, and even maybe this morning, you're just kind of still going through the motions, checking the box. Yeah, I went to church, whatever. But man, I'll tell you what. I pray to God that at some point in your life, you'll come to terms with that and you'll realize, wait a minute, only he can satisfy the deepest longing in my soul. I'm not going to find it out there. It's not found in creation, it just makes sense. That's logical, it's found in the creator. And uh, that's why verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and serve the Lord. Listen to me, following Christ is costly, but it's worth it. Man, it is worth it. Whatever, whatever you give up to follow Christ is nothing compared to what you gain in him. Believe me. Believe me, I put a couple verses there. Um, Philippians 3.8, Paul says, everything is worthless compared to the priceless gain of knowing Christ. And one of my favorite verses, Psalm 63.3, I haven't quoted it for a while. Here it is. His steadfast love is better than What? Better than life. There's nothing in life that compares to his steadfast love. Do you have any idea how much God loves you? Do you understand how satisfying his love is? His steadfast love is better than life. I mean, if I were to follow you around and look at your life, would I see that in your life? Or would I see in your life, no, this, the, the love of this or that is more important to me than his steadfast love. And so that's important. Now, that's true repentance. I don't care if life gets easy or hard. I just want you. And, uh, and guess what happens? Do you think that they live happily ever after from that point on? No, 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 no. Look at, you know, verses 17 and 18. I won't read it, but I'll just summarize it. You can read it on your own later as you work through the growing notes. But the Israelites have to battle the Ammonites and are searching for a man to lead them in battle. And the scene is set for God's deliverer to arrive. This is Jephthah that we'll be reading about in just a, a moment. But uh, let me make a point here. Some people talk as if when you come to Christ, your life gets easy. 
My marriage turned awesome. My boss gave me a raise. We discovered gold in our backyard. You know, you're going, wow, that's a wonderful testimony, but that didn't happen to me. There must be something wrong with me. Well, that's very unusual testimony. That's not usually the way it works. People's family and or friends turn against them. They lose their job. Finances get tight. And the battle against idols can get even more fierce. That's what they're up against. Yeah, they turn to the living God, and yet the battle rages on. And by the way, that's the true test. You know that. That's the true test. Did you come to God to get from him, to ease the pain, or to be with him? And is his steadfast love better than life? That, there's the test. Uh, that's the whole test that's found in the book of Job. Have you ever read the book of Job? Because that's what Satan is saying to God. Ah, he, he fears you because of all the good stuff you give him. Take all of his stuff away and see if he still fears you. See, and that's the test. Are you going to still serve God when all hell's breaking loose in your life? And uh, that's the point. Now, here's, let's read, uh, we're in chapter 11 now, Judges chapter 11, and this is where Jephthah comes in there. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore uh, him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Now this is the dude that's going to lead them in victory, and this guy, I love how God works. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. How many here, when you, when you don't really have a preference in a team, you typically go for the underdog? Anybody do that here? Most people do. Why is that? Because I think we've been creating the image of God, and that's what he's all about. He's always going for the underdog. This dude is a major underdog, and, and what you see throughout Scripture is that God tends to always go to the outcast, the underdogs, the marginalized. This guy's an outcast in his own home. Oh, you were born by that prostitute, that woman there. You're out of here. And so what's interesting about this story is that he's actually a, a crime boss, organized crime, romantically, a pirate. And, uh, and so that's you know, uh, Jephthah, and after a time the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? So he's calling them on how they treated him. Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now he's, gonna, he's checking their motives and he's gonna actually challenge them. I'm not just gonna be you know, your rescuer. I'm not just gonna fight for you. You need to make me your leader. And there's a really an important point here uh, because these uh, Old Testament uh, rescuers, judges are a dim glimpse of our greater rescuer, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And in verse nine, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will, will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Stop there just for a minute. Let me, let me kind of bring you up to speed uh, kind of with our notes before we hit the next point. So, so there's really a similarity between the Israelites' dialogue with God in chapter 10, verses 10 through 16 and with Jephthah. Remember, God's challenging them. Are you using me or do you really want me? Well, Jephthah's doing the same thing. It's not enough for the Gileadites to use Jephthah to rescue them after they've treated him so badly because that's, that's a, it's a picture of how they treated God and they must also, as they realize, make him their leader. So God's people must learn that how they treat God's judge, God's representative, is the way in which they are treating God himself. And God's leaders, as I said, are types who each point to the true and better judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it gives us a point here, the next point on your notes. So true repentance is not only accepting Jesus' rescue of you, but more importantly, Jesus' rule over you. Jesus' rule over you. You cannot have Jesus' rescue without accepting his rule. You might not even be able to track with that, but I've had tons of people say, well, I've accepted Jesus as Savior, but I'm still kind of holding out until he really becomes the Lord of my life. And you can't do that. You can't separate the two. Like, I'm going to heaven, I know that because I said the prayer, I walked the aisle, I got dunked in the tank, but I'm just kind of holding out and kind of doing my own thing. That's ludicrous. That doesn't make any sense. So let me ask you this. So you're, so you're trusting him for your, your eternity, but not for your temporal? That's not logical. And so you don't even really understand. And by the way, the Bible really says you know, totally contrary to that, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and then verse 13. It says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is what? Lord, Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation goes along with lordship. It's all in one. You can't separate the two, and, and, and it's, just, it's just crazy. It's just crazy not to follow him after what he's done for us. As I said last weekend, to not follow him is to trample on his love and wisdom. In his wisdom, knowing how he created us, knowing our strengths and weaknesses, and in his love, he has established how he wants us to live our lives, and he wrote it down for us, and when we go contrary to it, we're trampling on his love and wisdom. We go back to unbelief, we doubt his love and wisdom, to pride. I'm smarter, I'm smarter than you and I'm more loving than you. This is much more loving to me than what you're saying that I need to do. And then of course we're gonna replace him with, with, another, with another God and that's exactly, exactly what's happening. And uh, let me read to you a verse here, 1 John 5, 3. It says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So lordship is just about wanting to follow him and keep his commandments. When I first met my wife and I started dating her and I kind of knew after a while, uh, I'm gonna marry this girl. And I found a lot of delight in, in pleasing her and finding out what her likes and dislikes 
were. And so I really loved pleasing her until we got married. <clears throat> and then I realized that a lot of my motives were uh, more about me. I was pleasing her for me. Because she would start challenging me on these things because, okay, I already got you. What, what more do I need to do? And it's like, what? Come over here. Let me give you some knuckle bump. Cool, cool. And uh, I mean, so I mean, and so what I begin to, and so in uh, in 38 years, I've learned that uh, that when I begin to, the more I've fallen in love with her, real love, not love me, but love her, that I love to please her. I love hanging out with her. I love doing things for her. And not in some weird, abusive way, because it wouldn't be loving for me to let her sin uh, against me. It's not never loving to allow someone to sin against you. So there's just, uh, but even more so is that true in our relationship with God. Genesis 29, 20, I mean, it's just absolutely a wonderful, I love this verse. I don't think I put it in your notes. It's 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. <sighs> that's good. That's sweet. I, hey, I love a good romance from time to time. I mean, that's good stuff. So Jacob served seven years. What? That's some hard work. Why did he work so hard for seven years? And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. See, lordship, that just, of course you're gonna follow him. Oh my goodness. If you're in love with him, you're gonna follow him. You wanna honor him. You wanna uh, put, him, put him on display. And uh, that's pretty important. And so verses, uh, verses 12 through 28, let me kind of work through this next section here. Uh, verses 12 through 28, uh, verse 12, Jephthah first seeks a peaceful resolution. So the, he's the guy that's gonna lead them in victory against the Ammonites. And, um, and then Jephthah uses three arguments. This is just a summary of these verses. Three arguments to refute this claim. Verses 15 through 22, he gives a historical argument. Verses 23 through 24, a theological argument. Verses, verses 25 through 27, a legal argument. And all three arguments prove it is the Ammonites who are in the wrong, not God's people. And then, of course, verse 28, the king of Ammon just pays no attention. He just ignores them. And I think what he's teaching us here, it's a really good point, how to answer unfair accusations. How do you deal with conflict? And here it is. We must speak the truth in love, seeking peace with everyone, but in the end, don't swagger or snivel regardless of their response. And we talked about that this last weekend. We must speak the truth in love. So when you get conflict in a relationship, you must speak the truth in love, seeking peace with everyone, but in the end, don't swagger, don't tower, don't intimidate them or bully them, and don't be intimidated by them. Don't snivel or cower, regardless of their response. Jesus gives us a great uh, example of this here. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How was he able to do that? He was so filled up with the love of the Father and the Father's love, he could take it. He wasn't intimidated, nor was he gonna intimidate people. 
He's just saturated with the love of God. Romans 12, 18 says, as far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone. So true courage, born of the gospel, doesn't enjoy conflict nor avoids it. You don't enjoy it. You don't go around and pick fights. You, you guys know people who go around and pick fights? You don't want them in your small group, but then it's a good time for them to kind of grow up a little bit too. But if they're running around trying to pick a fight all the time, but you don't want to avoid conflict either. That shows some dysfunction. You don't want to go to either one of those extremes. True love or truth, truth without love is divisive. Love without truth is deceptive. So if you pull your punches when you need to give, you know, your friend a punch, it's because you have an emotional hunger. You're more concerned about how much they like you rather than actually speaking the truth to them. And that's, that's important for us to understand. And so what you want ultimately, as we said last weekend, because, we, because of the truth in God's word is, also, is obviously very contrary to the culture that we're living in, but we want to speak the truth in love, but we want to be so loving to people that they will say, I don't agree with you, but I can't deny your love for me. Now, this story really uh, gets tragic, just gets ugly, and it's almost traumatizing. And if anybody that's ever read this next part of the story, they've come to me just going, what is this doing in the Bible? Why did this happen? And let me read, read it. It's, it's Jephthah's tragic vow. And starting at verse 30, so he's getting ready to take on the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Ye. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Jump to verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter, and as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, Father, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has, been, has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. <clears throat> then he sent her away for two months and she departed and she and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow and he, that he had made. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Oh my goodness, what in the world is this? Jephthah had promised God to make a human sacrifice and and had obviously expected it to be a servant or someone else, not his only child. And most commentators try to kind of lessen this a little bit. And, and I, one, I think it's the Transformational Bible, ESV, actually says, well, he just 
put her in the temple. He, she was in the temple to serve in the temple as a virgin for the rest of her life. And that's not actually what it says. Most, most of your uh, good theologians would say, no, that's a sacrifice, a burnt offering. Now, why would he do this? Especially when it tells us in Deuteronomy 12, 31, it says that this is detestable. And you might say, wait, 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 what, what about Abraham? Well, that was a test of his faith and obedience. This is an attempt by Jephthah to pay God off, to negotiate with him. It's totally different. And Abraham never went completely through with his sacrifice either. Here's, it's, it's on your notes. I wrote it down. This is actually from Tim Keller's commentary. The first is that Jephthah had certainly been deeply desensitized to violence by the atrocious cruelty of the pagan cultures around him. Life had become cheap. Uh, when, it really, when it came to the obtaining of the idol of military dominance. And so, I mean, and that's true in our society today, in our, not necessarily directly in American culture, but world culture, that's what ISIS, I mean, they take a person's life and they don't even think about it. And that was very similar to what they were experiencing in this, in this world at this time, and so he had become desensitized to that. And here's the next thing, is that Jephthah was not only infected by pagan moral codes, but also by the pagan works righteousness understanding of God's character. I mean, he had in his belief system paganism. Paganism is negotiate with God. If we can appease him, then he'll you know, bring rain and bring prosperity to our crops. And so we gotta make sacrifices to the gods and then God will be pleased and we'll have prosperity. That was the idea here. He had no concept of a God of grace. And so Jephthah didn't realize it, but his life had, had very little of the meat of God's word mixed with a whole lot of really bad additives from his world poisoning his life and many others around him. Now, before we shake our head in bewilderment at Jephthah, we should realize that we're probably not as advanced as a culture as we think we are. We just worship different gods, different idols. The idolatries we cherish in, in this country have effects as devastating on, on our sons and daughters as Jephthah's was on his daughter. Let me just give you some real quick stats. Today, one out of every three children grow up in a single parent home and most are because one of the parents or both decided their desires were more important than what was best for the family. You read all the research, empirical evidence tells us that's a major risk factor for emotional and physical health, unhealthiness. In Maricopa County, there are 36 abortions every day, mostly because, and that was the stats in, in 2013, mostly because their lives were not deemed as important as what the adult thought best for them. Our appetite for pornography has created a sex industry more lucrative than all of the major sports combined, where the average age of the girl who enters it is 13 years old. And, and I've heard guys say, well, what, you know, a little click of the mouse and I can watch pornography in the privacy of my own home? That doesn't hurt anybody. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. First of all, it, it demeans and objectifies women, but what you're doing is adding to this whole industry. You're helping to create an industry that's sacrificing our daughters, and it's rampant. In our country, 30 million, mostly teenagers, have been diagnosed with anorexia or bulimia, which happens in part because of how highly we have exalted the idol of a perfect figure. And this is just a short list. 
Just as Jephthah, through the impurity of his faith, sacrificed his daughter, we are doing the same with our sons and daughters. Now, next point in your notes. We are far more shaped by the world than we perceive or would like to admit than by God's word. Another uh, stat, this is from George Barna, Barna Research Group, 2003. It was a book I picked up back in 2003. It was an interesting book. The title of the book was Think Like Jesus. And this is what he stated. Out of all of his research, he found out that only 9% of born-again adults have a biblical worldview. 9%. 91% of those that claim to be Christians don't have a biblical worldview. They're not making their decisions based on God's word. Isn't that crazy? He went on and said 2% of our, uh, our born-again teenagers have a biblical worldview. Only 2%. 98% don't. They're not shaped by God's word. And, uh, and then he went on in the book, he says, when people wonder why Christian church is losing influence in American society, the reason is that so very few think like Jesus. Very few think like Jesus. I, uh, my buddy Kurt, Kurt Edwards over here, he pastors a church right over here. I had a chance to get together with him and his wife, my wife and I, and Kurt and Rhonda, and then uh, Dana and Bridget. Dana's from a church in Scottsdale, good guy, good people. And we were sitting there, and Kurt told me a story about a, a guy that he had worked out with for a, for a season who was a Christian, seemed to be a really committed Christian, and he said this guy was very regimented in his workout program and in his diet. I mean, man, this guy was just impeccable when it came to those things. And obviously it saw Kurt's life and was wanting to experience Christ as, as Kurt had, and he said, man, I really want to experience Jesus more than ever before. And, and, and so Kurt says, so let me ask you this. Uh, what are you currently reading in your, in your Bible? What, what book are you currently working through? And the guy goes, oh, 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 I don't do that. And he goes, really? How do you expect to get really close to Jesus if you're not reading his word? How much of God's word are you getting into your heart and your life? And here's a guy that was so regimented in his, his physical body, which is temporal, you would have thought even more so should he be regimented in his, in his eternal. And it, and it was just, he, Kurt was like, what? You gotta be kidding me. You don't, you don't, you don't really mean what you're saying. You don't really want to get to know Jesus. You understand what this is? This is God's word. This is the very breath of God. So let me ask you this. How much of God's word are you getting into your life? How much is, uh, is this shaping you? If I were to come to you and ask you, what have you been reading lately? What has God been speaking to you? You ought to be able to go, yep, right here, man. This is good stuff. You ought to be saying, man, God's been speaking to me right here. This is how it's shaping my life. And I realized this was the idol that I was struggling with. But boy, this is beginning to set me free now. Yeah, it's a struggle, but man, I thank God for his grace. Because if you, if you can't say that, I'll guarantee you, you're being more shaped by this world than God's word. I mean, it's a fact. It frightens me to see what's going on in our churches. And by the way, by the way, let me commend you for even sitting here and listening to a 45 to 50 minute, sometimes an hour long sermon. That tells me that you love Jesus and you're willing for me to kind of hit you pretty hard. I mean, that's, that's absolutely wonderful because a lot of people come in here and they go, oh, that was way too long, man. I'm, I'm more into, and they would say this, I'm more into the cotton candy. I want to be more entertained. And that's the problem with the church today. We don't want to sit and dive into God's word and study it. Most churches, believe me, most churches even in the valley today are, are doing little sermonettes. And the result of that will be Christianettes. 
You know, and it's just, it's, it's, it doesn't change our lives. Why, do, why did Barna come up with this stat? Only 9% of born again adults have a biblical worldview? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your minds, it says in uh, Romans 12 too. Listen to what John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 says. He says, if you continue in my word, by the way, I'm gonna drop his name. I'm not gonna have to pay him any royalties because he's on staff here, but uh, Darren Dirksen, this was the verse that was very convicting for him when he first came to Desert Breeze. And he uses this as part of his testimony. He said, when I first came to Desert Breeze well over 10 years ago, he says, this was the verse. If you abide in my word, then you are really my disciple. And you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? Yes, it will. And freedom is not just doing whatever the heck you want to do, as our culture says, and everybody has to back off because if you don't back off, you're being intolerant. That's not freedom. Freedom is doing what you were created to do. Listen to me. And you were created by God to enjoy the wealth of his glory and to walk with him and live his word and contribute to his work and make an impact in this world, all for his glory. Nothing will bring you more satisfaction than that. And that's, and, and we're doing anything and everything other than that. And it's so important that we come back to God's word. And so he says, if you continue in my word, that word means to abide, to live, to dwell, to make your home in his word. I take God's word regularly and just meditate on it. I'll take verses of scripture and reflect on them and meditate on them. Oh my goodness, it's how God speaks to me so powerfully. I, couldn't, I can't survive without God's word, saturating my life. And... Um, and so, this is how we're gonna be able to, see, and there's a, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, what do we do with our kids because we're being bombarded by the culture and should we homeschool or private school or, or public school? It, it, you know, really, that's up to you, but most importantly, they need to be saturated with God's word. And you need to be saturated with God's word. And that's why you need to get them involved here with our youth because that's what they're doing with our youth and, and in every Every area of all the kids' classes. Man, we want your kids, we want to be saturated with God's word. Because what happens is that we tend to assimilate, we become like the world, and we have an audience, but we don't have a message. Or we isolate, and we might have a message, but we don't have an audience. But the Bible has called us to infiltrate. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, but he loved his neighbor as himself. So he was radically different from the world, and at the same time, he was he was able to radically identify. That's what we want if we're gonna make an impact in this world. So we need to know God's word. Okay, I'm off my preaching box. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> Here we go again. So God's favor is not earned and therefore cannot be unearned, but is freely given by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. See, that's what uh, Jephthah was really doing. Well, I've gone way over this morning. Okay. I usually try to hit about 45 minutes. We're about 49 right now. So, uh, but I've got a little bit more, we're almost finished, but let me make my points here, so, so listen up, because this next point is just as important, because Jephthah was thinking that God was a, that God was a pagan God, that he had to somehow you know, appease God, and religions in the world are divided as to the best way to motivate people. Some choose the carrot, some choose the stick. And it's all about doing. 
It's all about works righteousness. Obey God and God will bless you. That's the carrot. Obey God or God will curse you or he'll get you. That's the stick. The gospel is, it's already done. The gospel is that God took the stick and beat Jesus with it and handed us the carrot. That's, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's already been done. He's given us everything we need. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. This is the pure meat of Christianity with no poultry paste or additives. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's putting your faith in him. And if you have a legitimate faith, oh my goodness, you're gonna wanna serve him. You're gonna wanna follow him. You're gonna wanna study his word. I mean, if our expectation of God's blessing depends on how well we are living the Christian life, then you don't understand grace. Well, I didn't do very good this week, so God's not gonna be blessing me. Listen, you already have his blessing. It's not based on your performance. It's based on the performance of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid it all. And I mean all. He not only purchased your forgiveness of sins, but your ticket to heaven, but he also purchased every blessing, every answered prayer, everything you'll ever need from this point until heaven. It's not based on your performance. This isn't about trying harder. This is just falling in love with Jesus. It's about really understanding his love for you and filling your heart up with his love more, more and more. And... Uh, so here's the last part. I'm not gonna read the last part. Judges 12, one through seven. Jephthah was diplomatic with the Ammonites, but when it came to his own people, he was lethal. And here's the point. The true test of a life transformed by the gospel is not who you are in public, but who you are in private with those who are closest to you. There was a time in my life if you were to go to the fire department, you know, or when I worked construction, I was the nicest guy in the world. People would say, Ray is the nicest, they'd even tell my wife, he's the nicest guy in the world. She'd look at him like, yeah, we'll just try to live with him, okay? And, uh, and, I, and that's, that's a, you know, that's a uh, contradiction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And obviously I was pretending because evidence that the gospel has invaded my heart is you ask my wife, you ask my kids, I need to ask your wife, your kids, those people that are closest to you. Because that's the true test if the gospel's gotten deep into your heart. Because it's not gonna be some kind of make-believe thing, you're gonna be living this out day in and day out because you love him. This is not about trying harder through for some formulaic steps from a self-help book. This is a love and obedience to God that grows in direct proportion to your knowledge and experience of his costly, relentless, and extravagant love for you through the study of his word and the work of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, thank you. Thank you for the true and better judge and rescuer, Jesus, who sets us free from the enslavement of idols by grace through faith in him, giving us all the meaning, hope, and love we'll ever need. As his true disciples, may we abide, live, dwell, make our home in your word so that we can know the truth and the truth will set us free. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you guys, love you guys.